Well, good afternoon. My name is Jared Stevens. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Soul City Church, and I love that song. We kind of set out a couple months ago that that would be our anthem for Easter, is that song that tells the story of really what we celebrate and what the Christian faith is really anchored in. What we hang our hope in is what we just sang about, that there is a God who sent his son, whose death on a cross and, and resurrection is what gives us life and gives us hope and gives us freedom and fullness. And so I love that song because it kind of sets up and tells the story of what we're walking into over the next couple of weeks. And before we get into the, the message for today, I want to actually draw your attention to a couple of things coming up in a couple of weeks, specifically Easter weekend. I just want to let you know so you can kind of be praying and be planned and prepared for what's going on. I want to let you know about two days in that weekend, and then two ways that you can be a part of what God is doing here at Soul City Church this specific Easter. So uh, quickly, I want to let you know about the two days. Uh, now, obviously, it's a weekend, so there really are just two days in a weekend, but I want to highlight them. A Saturday, which is the big find, which is uh, Chicago's greatest, dare I say, the world's greatest Easter egg hunt, and that goes on just a couple blocks east of here on Saturday morning. I want to let you know about that day, Saturday. It is such a fun event. I don't know if you've been to it or not before. It is so fun to see not just the neighborhood come out, but the city come out and really be a part of this. And we take over this park on that Saturday. And what's really fun is this year, uh, the goal is, the plan is actually to have 22,000 Easter eggs for that Easter egg hunt. That's more eggs than grass on that Easter egg hunt. Kids are going to be walking on eggs to get eggs. It's going to be absolutely epic and amazing. And I want to let you know about that. And then I want to let you know about the second day, which is that Sunday, Easter Sunday. Uh, we have four identical gatherings, but they're at kind of different times, unique times, so that we can offer as many opportunities for folks to come hear about what we just sang about. And that's going to be going on Easter Sunday. Those are the two days, Saturday, Big Fine, and Sunday, which is Easter. And I want to let you know about two ways that you can be a part of what God's doing here on those two days. The first way is, is really simple. It's to be inviting someone to come be a part of one of those days, or maybe both of those days. Who is it that God has put in your life, either at work or a neighbor or in your family, that you can bring along with you, that you can invite out? You know, a lot of people may not go to church that much, but they'll, they'll come maybe on Easter or they'll come on Christmas, and they may only be one ask away from coming. And so for you, we want to encourage you to be thinking about who is it that God has put in your life that you want to invite and come with and bring with you that weekend. We, we have friends that we have invited every year to Easter. They come to the big find. They've come to our Sunday gatherings once in all the times that we've done them. But you know what? We're not going to stop asking. In fact, I'm inviting them already this year. I've got friends and our neighbors literally that live right next to us, invited all of them. Those with kids are coming out to the big find and uh, my friend James had been building a relationship with him last year. He already knows. He didn't come to church a ton, but I've asked him to come twice in one weekend. That's a lot for him. And so he's breaking all kinds of previous records by doing that. And so the question is, who is it that God has put in your life that you can be inviting? That's a way to be a part of what we're doing. You know, on our, our church this spring, like this so far this year, each weekend we're averaging somewhere between 1,000 and 1,100 people that come every weekend to Soul City Church. That's pretty amazing. It may not feel that way when you look around this room, but we have four different gatherings. And so when you kind of add all that up, it's pretty amazing to see what God's doing. And so our prayer and faith is that we'd fill up all four gatherings and that we'd see 1,600 people at our church. Not because numbers are the point, because every one of those people matters to God. And of those 1,600, I bet you know two or three. I bet there's a couple that God has put in your life that need to hear about what we just sang about or need to come out and celebrate and have a great day on Saturday at the Big Find. So that's how you can be involved. You can be inviting. 
And then the other way is to actually be involved, to volunteer, to serve somewhere over the course of that weekend. To, to serve or volunteer either at the big find or to serve or volunteer here on Easter Sunday. You know, we, our kind of best estimates, we've got to figure out it's going to take about 350 people to make that weekend happen. That's a lot of folk. And so what we're asking you to do is, if you can, we're going to ask you to show up, to come to one and serve at one, to show up on Saturday, not just to have a great time, but to actually maybe facilitate Saturday. So I'm going to encourage you just to do this. I'm not going to walk through all. They're awesome opportunities. This is one of the easiest and best ways for you to get involved and be a part of what God's doing here. It is, we make it so easy and so fun, but it's so meaningful for you. So here's all you need to do. If you, first of all, if you're hearing my voice and me talking about how you can invite and be involved, would you just nod your head so that I know you're with me 1230? Okay, good. By nodding your head, you just agreed to invite and, and be involved. <laughs> I didn't tell I didn't finish my sentence before you nodded. So no, but here's what you can do. Because we don't, I want to get to the sermon today, what we want to talk about. But I want you to go to soulcitychurch.com slash Easter. Would you go to that page, soulcitychurch.com slash Easter. You can find out about our service times. We're actually asking you to RSVP your seats because so many people come and it's going to be such a full house. Can you let us know? And we can try as best we can to plan and make sure there's enough seats available so you can RSVP for the time that you're coming and who you're bringing. And then you can choose where you want to serve that weekend. It's super easy for you to do, but you can even do it actually on your phone right now while I'm talking. I won't be offended if you wanted to do that. So just go to soulcitychurch.com slash Easter. You can see all the details there. We would love for you to be inviting and to be involved somehow this Easter. So I want to pray for us. And specifically, I want to pray for you. In a moment, in a, in a prayer, I'm going to pause. I'm going to have you take a little risk and say out loud, maybe some people that God has put in your life, some coworkers, some friends, family members, neighbors, that you know in your heart, man, they should just be here, either on Saturday or on Sunday. I want them to see this. I want them to come with me. And, and if you're a guest here, it's your first time here this Sunday, and you're like, dude, I just got here. Now you're asking me to do stuff. Here's the deal. All you have to do that weekend is show up, okay? It's your first time. Your guest around here just started coming. Just show up that weekend. But maybe, just maybe, there's some people you'd want to show up with. So I'm going to pray for you and for us. And when I get to this moment in prayer, I'm going to pause, and I want to let you know about what the 830 and 1030 crowd had done before you. When I got to this moment in the prayer and I said, hey, we're going to just name these people, God, that you put in our life that we want to have the courage to invite to Easter. This is how that moment went. Okay, so it was like a low-talking Charlie Brown teacher. Like it was barely recognizable. So in the moment, I want you to say the name out loud. It's a little step of faith, but I want you to name who are the people that God has put in your life that need to hear about what we just sang about. And just say their name out loud. That's all you got to do. And then we'll move on. We'll get into this message this morning. So let me pray for us for Easter and for our church. God, thank you for what you're doing. Thank you that this is your church. Thank you, God, this is your city. We just get to be a part of what you're doing. Thank you for Easter. That in a world that is kind of ravaged by sin and has its fair share of pain, we have something to celebrate. And it's you, and so we want to celebrate you. We want to have fun and celebrate the fullness of life that comes from relationship with you on Saturday. And we want to celebrate the cross and the empty tomb on Sunday. We don't want to miss a thing that you have for us this Easter. So Jesus, we are naming right now to you people you already know and already love and may have even put in our path so that we might be a part of them hearing more about your great love. So we say these names out loud to you right now as a prayer of commitment and dedication for them to you. Go ahead. Brad and Erica, Jeff and Marley, James. God, you know these names. 
And there are more that maybe didn't come to our head and our heart in this moment, but we trust that you will not only lead us to them, but provide us for opportunities to stretch our faith, to have a little courage, and to invite people into the joy that it is of knowing you. I pray this would be a big Easter, not for numbers and all that kind of stuff, but for us personally, that we would experience you like never before by having someone sitting next to us and by rolling up our sleeves and getting involved in what you're doing in this city through this church. We love you. We're so grateful for this message that we have to celebrate. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to let you know, uh, we're, we're kicking off actually today a brand new series uh, called Come Alive. And we're going to be walking with Jesus really right up to and just beyond the cross over the next couple of weeks. We're going to be camping out in the events that kind of led to uh, the death and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and then really what happened right after that. And we're going to be camping out in one book of the Bible specifically. We're going to be camping out in the Gospel of John. And the reason we're doing that is because there are very significant moments that John captures as an eyewitness to Jesus that are worth us paying attention to and even hearing from God 2,000 years later. Here's what's unique about John and his account of the life of Jesus. You know that there's maybe four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John was one of the original disciples of Jesus. Many scholars believe that he was the youngest of the disciples, and he had a very special relationship with Jesus. Jesus really loved John. In fact, his nickname for John was the Beloved. He was the disciple that Jesus loved so clearly. Now, what makes John unique from all of the other Disciples and all the other eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus is John was the only disciple to walk with Jesus all the way to the cross. Every other disciple abandoned Jesus in his greatest hour of need, but John stayed. John was there at the cross. So his account, his eyewitness account, these events that we're going to look at really matter and have a lot to reveal, not only about who Jesus is, but what it means for us to have relationship with him. And we're specifically going to be looking at a moment in the gospel of John in the life of Jesus just weeks before the cross when Jesus performs perhaps easily his greatest miracle and one of the last miracles he would perform on earth where he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. He raised Lazarus like from a tomb, like buried and dead, brought him back to life. And so I just want to name what may be running through your mind as I walk through this message and that word is zombie. And I just want to name it so that we can just get it out there in the air and just deal with the fact that this sounds like a zombie account. Now, the great thing is he doesn't attack anyone, which is great. We don't have that recorded in the Bible. But he is someone who comes from death to life. And our culture has a fascination with that. In the last couple of years, if you notice that, like we have a, very, a growing fascination with zombies, with what happens after someone dies, and specifically how they can kill you and how they must be killed. There's lots, there's, there's, listen, there's movies, all kinds of movies about zombie attacks, which you're in church, so I, I know you never saw them, but, but there's zombie, there's, there's shows on TV, there's shows not even just about zombies, obviously there's Walking Dead, but then there's other ones, but there's also shows about like life after death, and what do we do with that? There's a show out right now called Resurrection, where like what happens if someone you thought died comes back. There's the greatest show to ever deal with kind of life after death. Uh, that show is Lost. And I think it's just the greatest show of all time. And if you'd like, we can start a Bible study afterwards where we talk about Lost. I'm ready for that. I've been preparing for that. And so like a lot of fascination with that, a lot of books written. I've read a couple zombie books. I'm just going to be honest with you. Like, because we have this kind of fascination with it. In fact, what's so funny is I hate to admit it, but the truth is my son's eight, some of his favorite games to play on the iPad deal with zombies. 
and not like gross, like, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, he, he, his favorite, so he has two favorite games right now, and one of them is Minecraft. I don't know if you're familiar with Minecraft. I don't understand the game. You just kind of build stuff and stay alive. That's really all you do. But one of the big things is at night, the zombies come out. And he's like, dead zombies are coming to eat my brains. And I have to tell myself, I'm a good dad. I'm a good pastor. And I just tell him to play some more on the iPad. And so, like, so there's Minecraft. And then there's another one that he loves to play called Plants vs. Zombies. That's this is a real thing in the real world, people. Plants versus zombies. Where all kinds of zombies, disco zombies, football zombies, all these zombies attack, and you fight them off with plants, with pea shooters and all kinds of other stuff. And I'm trying to understand the world my son has grown up in. I'm like, son, I don't understand why you can't play good games, like meaningful games, like where a giant gorilla is throwing barrels at you. That makes sense to me. I get that. I don't get plants versus zombies. So... We, we live in a culture that is fascinated with death, and all the books and movies and shows and games are kind of hinting around, or coming around this one question, and it's simply this. How do you live after you've died? How do you live? What, what is life like after you died? I'm not talking about heaven or hell or any of that kind of stuff. I'm talking about what happens if someone is dead and then they come back. How do you live after you've died? What could your life possibly be like after you maybe have had a spiritual death and you've been brought back to life? What does that life look like? That's what we're going to look at this weekend, specifically in Lazarus's life that was brought from the dead back to life. So I'm going to ask you to grab a Bible. If you have your own, fantastic. You get bonus points. If you have it on your phone, that's great. If you don't have one, easy. We've got you covered. There's a blue Bible in your seat back. Would you grab that open to John chapter 11? This is the gospel account of John chapter 11. In the blue Bible, it's page 748, page 748. I want to give you some context as to where we're coming into the story of Jesus in John 11. Again, page 748 in the blue Bible. Let me give you a little context to where we're at not only specifically in kind of the chronology of Jesus' life leading up to the cross, but where he's at geographically. Very, very important for us to pay attention to. Uh, Jesus, in John chapter 11, the story that we're about to look at takes place in a town called Bethany, a little hillside community just in the shadow of the great city of Jerusalem. And I actually had the opportunity to, to visit uh, Bethany to actually go to what is supposedly the house where some of these events happen. And there's a picture of from the view from uh, Bethany, which is kind of up on this little hill. And can you notice, can you look at the picture to the left? You see the gold dome there? Okay, now you see the wall that surrounds it? That's actually the old city of Jerusalem. That's the actual old city of Jerusalem on the left there. Do you look, if you look to the right, do you see kind of that grove of trees and they kind of crawl up the hill? That's actually the Mount of Olives. These are very significant places in the life of Jesus. In fact, through those groves of trees is a little small place, and they don't know exactly where, but there's a place called the Garden of Gethsemane where we're going to walk with Jesus to in a couple of weeks as he spends his last few hours before the cross. I went to visit, and to get into the supposed Garden of Gethsemane, we had to bribe a couple priests and nothing felt like being a good pastor than bribing priests to see the Garden of Gethsemane. Very important place for Jesus. Now, why is Bethany so significant? Because it stands literally in the shadow of Jerusalem, as we're going to get to in a moment. But Bethany, more than that, was, was a place that Jesus really loved. He wasn't from there, but it had become like a home to him, a second home to him. 
Frank Viola, in his great work this last week, or this last year, called God's Favorite Place on Earth. He wrote a book called God's Favorite Place on Earth, and it's a whole book about the little town of Bethany and all the miracles and events and relationships that existed for Jesus in this little town of Bethany. In Bethany, what mattered most to Jesus were three people, his friends, Mary and her sister Martha and their brother Lazarus. That's a really interesting thought to think about for a second, that Jesus had friends, that he actually not only had friends, he needed friends. He needed people where he could come down and be himself with, where he could come to and and, and be real, where he could come to and just kind of let the weight of all of the world that was just resting on his shoulder be shared by some people who knew him and who were with him. Jesus not only had friends, he needed friends. And he had no closer friends from what we can see in the Bible than Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They loved Jesus for all of who he is as savior of the world and all of who he was as a man walking among them. And so Jesus loved Bethany most specifically because of the friends that he had there. And so this is the story of an interaction he had with those friends. John 11, let's start in verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. We just talked about him a second ago. Friend of Jesus, brother of Mary and Martha. He was from Bethany. We already covered that. Village of Mary and her sister Martha. So this is verse 3. So that's kind of what's going on. So the sisters sent word to Jesus that, Lord, the, the one you love is sick. Now, this is really interesting. Lazarus is sick and seemingly dying. We don't know how much they knew, how bad it was. We don't even know what it was that he was sick with, but he was sick. And so they, it was serious enough for them to send word to Jesus, who was miles and miles and miles away. They sent a messenger to Jesus to say, Lord, now look at the words here. The one you love is sick. The one that you love is sick. So the word gets to Jesus in John chapter 11, verse 4, and he says, when he heard this, Jesus said, oh, no, 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 this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. That's what he tells the messenger. Imagine you're that messenger sent desperately from Mary and Martha to go get Jesus and bring him back. And Jesus is like, oh, no, 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 let me explain. This is, no, he's not gonna, this is just a sickness. It's not going to end in, as you think it is. It's for God's glory. So run, tell that. You know, just, <laughs> you're the messenger like, so you're not coming with me or what? Can you write that down? Because that's not what they want to hear. They want you there, Jesus. Now, this is really, really interesting because what Jesus is giving us is a glimpse into what he sees and what we so often miss is that Jesus sees glory even in the darkest chapters of our story. In Jesus, there is always room for glory even in the darkest and most difficult chapters of your story. He knows that this story is not going to end merely in death, but it's a chance for glory to be revealed. So, verse 5. Now, it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He clearly loved them, making a point about that. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he, what's the word? What? When he heard that Lazarus, so he loved them very much. And when he heard that Lazarus was sick, sick, he just stayed. Now, if you love someone very much and they say they need you, what is your response? 
I'm there. I'm there. I mean, this is Jesus. He could have just immediately gone back with the messenger. He could have gotten on the fastest donkey and ridden back to Bethany. He's Jesus. He could have like gone, and he could have been there and like teleported. He could have easily done that. The text says that he loved them very much and he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Now this is very important, hard for us to wrap our head and our hearts around. I bet every single one of us at some point in our life, maybe as recently as today, have prayed one of those desperate prayers to Jesus. A desperate prayer of Jesus, I need you, you, I need you to move. You have to do this. You have to come. You have to move. And you finish praying. You've prayed for about two minutes or so. And you go, okay, Jesus, where are you at? I expect you to answer immediately after what I've prayed. And you wait another two minutes and you hear nothing. And then you pray and wait for another two days and nothing. And then it's two months and then it's two years. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that before? Jesus, I need you now. Where, where are you? I need you to do this. I, I need you to move this way on my behalf. And often what we find with God is he is on a completely different timetable than you or me. And we, we wonder why he doesn't move instantly when we call, why he doesn't work exactly as we want him to. And what Jesus is revealing to us here is that while Jesus never, ever promised the elimination of our pain, he did promise the redemption of our pain. He never promised that you and I would be exempt from pain and loss in this world. In fact, he was quite honest about it in this world. You will have troubles. You will have problems. You will have loss. But he said, take hope because I have overcome the world. I can redeem every tear, every hour of pain, every moment of loss. I cannot and I will not spare you from it. In fact, what Jesus knows is that he loves you so much that sometimes he allows pain to do the work in your life that only pain can do. And all you want him to do is take it away. And yet he has something greater, a revelation of his glory, another only God story for your life. That's what's going on here. He knows. He knows what's going on, but he says, no, there's a bigger story at work. And so, a story at work, and so he stays. And then eventually, verse 11, let's jump down there. Jesus has said, okay, kind of told his disciples what was about to happen. He said, okay, gather up, huddle up. Jesus is about to have a coach's corner with his disciples. They all kind of gather, right, take a knee, take a knee. So they all take a knee. All right, here you go. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going to wake him up. This is a really cool metaphor that Jesus is using. Disciples totally miss it, completely miss it. Look at verse 12. His disciples replied, but Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Because this one time I had a headache and I, took a, and I took a nap and I woke up and it was gone. So we should let him sleep, right? And Jesus is like, mm, 
Metaphor here, people. Metaphor. Sleep equals death. Stay with me. Try and keep up. I'm leaving in a couple months. I want you to get this. They completely miss it, even at the end. Jesus had been speaking about his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. Of course, that's what he meant, Peter. And so he goes on, verse 15. So then he told them plainly, yeah, Lazarus is dead. Thanks for killing my speech there that I had. It's really off to a start there. You're right. He's dead. And for your sake, you know what? I'm glad I was not there so that you actually might believe, so that you can see God's glory on display, even in the dark hour of this story. So let's go to him. Now, very important what Jesus is saying here. Because to be in Bethany was to be in the shadow of Jerusalem. And at that time in the life and ministry of Jesus, there was a very real plot and very real players in motion to kill Jesus. He was such a threat to the religious institution, to the establishment of that day, that they had already determined in their hearts that they were going to end his life in the hopes of ending this movement of followers who were following the way of Jesus. To go anywhere near Jerusalem was a threat to their own life, and the disciples knew it. That's why Jesus for the last couple months had actually steered clear of Jerusalem because it wasn't time yet. There was a bigger, again, God sees time so much differently than we do. And he knew it wasn't time for him to give his life. And so now he says, let's go. And he makes the march to Bethany. As we're going to see next week, that becomes a stop on his way to Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, and ultimately to the last week of his life. To go to Bethany was to go to the cross. And Thomas knows this, one of his disciples. This is verse 16. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, or if you were here for our Upside of Down series, you know his other nickname is P. Didymus. He, um, that was way funnier at the 1030, Joel. I thought, I thought that was going to be better. Okay, so anyway, he's, you actually know him as another name. This Thomas is also known as what? Doubting, Doubting Thomas. And so listen to what he says. It's so funny. So then Thomas Didymus said to the rest of the disciples, yeah, let's all just go that we may die with him. In other words, we're all going to die by going to Bethany. So yeah, let's just ride off into the sunset together, Jesus. Thomas in this moment is actually playing the role of Eeyore in their group. Before he was doubting Thomas, he was downer Thomas. And so just so you know, I love the Bible puts these details in there because this was real. Like these are real people and they're real responses. And so Jesus is like, all right, let's just, let's go. Thomas, just, you know, here we go. So they get there. Let's jump down to verse 21. They arrive at Bethany and Jesus gets to Bethany and grief is just thick in the air. I don't know if you've ever had to walk into the room of someone who recently lost someone and you know that feeling, don't you? I'll never forget walking into the hospital when my father-in-law had just died. You feel grief in your bones. You feel it in the air. And Jesus arrives in Bethany, and it's just ripe. It's thick in the air. There is deep grief and mourning going on because Lazarus has died. Jesus is too late. And in that culture, first century Judaism, grief was a very serious thing. Grief was like, it's like a full contact sport. Very intense. In fact, in, in that culture, and still practiced around the world to this day, there, there's a spiritual practice when someone dies, when grief comes, as it most certainly will in life, called sitting in Shiva. The practice is called sitting in Shiva, where you sit 
in the weight of grief for seven whole days. You just sit in the weight and the loss and the pain of grief. You don't shower, you don't shave, you don't put on pretty clothes. You weep and you wail and the community joins with you and you sit in grief, sitting in Shiva for seven days. How often in our culture have we left things ungrieved? How many moments in your life did you think your job was to just move past and get on with? How many things in your story have gone ungrieved where you just sat in the weight of a loss and named it for what it is? That's what sitting in Shiva is. And that's exactly what's happening in Bethany. They are sitting in the weight of the loss. And Jesus arrives right around the middle of the week, right around day four of them sitting in Shiva. And Martha, the sister of Lazarus and Mary, runs up to Jesus. And look what happens in verse 21. Lord, she says, if you had been here, now listen to this, boldness. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now look at the shift from what she sent with the messenger to what she's saying now to Jesus. What did she send with the messenger? Jesus, the one you love. So you care about Lazarus, do something about this. But now her pain is personal. It's real. It's come home. And she says, Jesus, my brother, forget your relationship with him. My brother is gone. And if you, putting her finger in his chest, if you only, if only you would have been here, you could have kept this from happening. He would not have died. If only, if only, if only. And I know those are two small words, but they can have great power in our lives. I bet every single one of us is carrying our own little list of if onlys. Now, what I, you got to give to Martha, what you got to respect about it, is she took her if only to Jesus. If only you had done this. She took her pain to the right person, but she just didn't believe he had enough power. Took her pain to the right person. If only you would have been here, but she didn't believe he had enough power for what was right in front of her. And my hunch is you've prayed or maybe are praying these prayers right now with God to God. If only you would provide me with a better job or if only you would provide me with a clear sense of direction for my life. Just about every week when I pray with folks here in the front of the stage, there's somebody who says, I don't know what to do with my life. I feel stuck. I feel like I'm just walking in circles. If only God would make it clear what I'm supposed to do. And then there's other you who are like, I don't care if God makes it clear. If only he would give me a job. I don't even have to like the job. I just want a job. If only, God, you would make it clear. God, if only you would have provided me with the wisdom I needed to handle my resources when I was in college. God, if only I would have known those habits, how they would affect my life later. If only, God, I would have known then what I know now. If only, God, I had enough money to sort of feel comfortable. If only you could provide it for me. God, if only you could actually provide me with a better spouse. I'm stuck with this one. Can you fix him, please? If only you could make him better or forget that. If only you would give me a spouse. God, if only I could be married. How many more weddings do I have to go to and sit and celebrate someone else's joy when all I feel is loss? If only I were married. If only that was me up there. If only we could have a child. 
If only we could have a child. Why? Won't you come and fix this? If only there wasn't this addiction in my life that has dominated the better part of my life and left me to assume that all I can offer is to manage it as best I can. If only, if only, if only. You got to give it to Martha for taking her pain to the right person, but she just didn't believe he had enough power to overcome her if onlys. And what Jesus is about to reveal to her and merely maybe the only reason you came here today is to hear that when it comes to Jesus, your if onlys are not the end of your story. Your if onlys are not the end of your story. That place where you're sort of Deep doubts and your greatest guilt collide and if only. That's not the end of your story. And Jesus is about to reveal that to them. And I hope he does the same with you. I hope you see this today. Verse 33. So when Jesus saw her weeping, he wasn't even into the town fully yet. When he saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her, who were sitting in Shiva with her weeping. Now look at this. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled, and said, where have you laid him? Where is he? And they said, come and see, Lord. Now this, verse 35, one of the smallest and simplest and most profound verses in the entire Bible, Jesus in the wait in the midst of their grieving and loss. It says in John eleven thirty-five, Jesus wept. He wept. Now, he, he knew the bigger story. He knew where this was going. He could have easily said, oh God, just hang tight. Spoiler alert, he's coming back. He could have easily just played it off like, no, 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 you, you, don't, you don't get it. This is going to get so much better. Just stay with me. Jesus, so present with them in their grief, so moved by their pain, weeps. Jesus, creator of the universe, overrun with tears. How often in our pain, when we don't see him coming, when we want him to, do we assume that he has turned a blind eye to our lives? When the truth is his eyes are filled with tears for you. Do you know that Jesus Christ weeps over your pain and loss? Stands with you isn't on the other side just waiting for you to get better so you could get back with him. Weeps. And is maybe inviting you to do the same today. To grieve what needs to be grieved. To weep over what needs to be wept over. And to see that Jesus Christ, Savior of the world, Son of God, stands with you even in your darkest and most desperate hour. Here Jesus is weeping with his friends. And so, verse 38, Jesus is moved, and so he goes to the tomb where Lazarus is buried. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance, and this is all Jesus says. He says, just get, take the stone away. Just take it away. Take away the stone. Come on, death is done. Take the stone away. Now look at what's so funny. Martha says, but Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, in case you hadn't picked that up by now, but Lord, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there for four 
days. Now, Martha might have some misplaced priorities here. She is so worried about this, seemingly about this moment that she's like, God, if we do that, it, like that is a big party foul. Like it is going to stink. I mean, in the original language, it literally translates to Lord, he stank. And it's, it's so like, and so you can see like, you can read that on the surface and go, Martha, you, 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 your priority planning life is, is, is like, it's not, you, that seems to be the wrong thing to be focusing on. But it's actually, there's something much, much deeper that I didn't know until kind of studying why would she draw attention to that. Because in that culture at that time, there was a belief, largely based in myth, but nevertheless, believed that when a person dies, their soul would stay with them for three days after they died. That someone's soul would stay in their body three days after they died. I don't know exactly, no one really knows where that came from. Maybe they're waiting to pick up their mail, or I don't know what it was, but that the soul would say, and then when the fourth day would come is when they believed that's when the soul would leave, and that's when decay would set into the body. That's how they understood and framed decay, which happens naturally to everybody when it dies. Their belief was that decay only sets in after the third day when the soul has left the body. And what day is Martha saying that it is right now? It's the fourth day, Jesus. You're too late. You're too late. Don't you know what's going on here? Odor has set in. Decay has set in. And it wasn't just the decay of Lazarus' body that Jesus was concerned with. It was that her hope had decayed away. She took her pain to the right person but didn't believe he had enough power to even defeat the assumption that the soul had already left. So Jesus praise. And he takes this moment to direct people's attention to God. He very intentionally and very deliberately prays so that he knows. In fact, he even says in the prayer, God, he says, I'm not praying this for you and me. I'm praying this for them so that they know that my power comes from you. Because again, the threats were hot against Jesus. The plot was real. And it wouldn't take much for people to think, oh, what kind of power does he have that he's raising people from the dead? So he says, no, I'm going to defer all glory to God and say this is actually by God's power that he does what he's about to do. And after he'd prayed, verse 43, after he'd said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out, come out. And the dead man came out, hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, you take off those grave clothes and you let him go. Death no longer has a grip on him. You take off those grave clothes. He is no longer dressed for death, but dressed in glory. You do not let death hold on to him anymore. And Lazarus literally came out. This eyewitness of Jesus, as also recorded in several other accounts, Lazarus like went from the category of deceased back into the category of living. Can you imagine what that must have been like for Lazarus? I mean, he wasn't expecting much. He was dead at that point. Soul had left, decay had set in. He's like, meh. And so he's there dead and he hears his voice and gets up and comes out. How do you live after being dead like that? What do you think his life was like after that moment? Great American playwright Eugene O'Neill in 1925 wrote this beautiful play called Lazarus Laughed. 
And he told the story of what happened after this moment. How for the rest of his life, Lazarus couldn't stop laughing because he had stood in the face of death and all he heard was God's great joy and delight. And his life was forever changed. In raising Lazarus from the dead, Jesus proves, he goes, look, there there is nothing that can stand between you and me. There is nothing that is more powerful than God's love for you. In raising Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, Jesus proves that death is just another detail defeated by him. What else you got? What else you got? What else do you think is too big or that I am too late for in your life? What are your if-onlys? Jesus says, I've defeated death. I've defeated it all. There's nothing, no power on earth that can stand against me and God's love for you. So, what are you still holding on to? What are the grave clothes that you are still wrapped up in? The places that you thought God's love and his power were too little or too late for you. A couple months ago, I got a a picture of exactly what this looks like. The power of resurrection, the same power that raised Lazarus from the dead, that raised Jesus from the dead, that can raise you and me, from our own spiritual death. I was up here in the front after our gathering praying. It's one of the joys that I have as a pastor in this community is to stand with you and to pray with you at the end of every gathering. We line the front of the stage with members of our staff and our elders and our prayer team, and we just pray for whatever's going on in your life, however we can pray. And I saw a couple walking towards me, and I'm telling you, I didn't know the story, but I could see the grave clothes wrapped all over them. They were in some deep pain. They weren't looking at each other. They weren't talking to each other. And in fact, the whole time we were there, he didn't even talk. She did. And she went on to tell me about how their marriage was really at the end of the ropes. It was done. That he had broken a promise to her, broken her trust, broken her heart how a couple months before that moment that we were praying, he had actually moved out of the house. He was done and gone. They weren't wearing their wedding rings anymore. And they didn't even know why they came forward. They weren't going to church together. They just happened to be here at the same time. And so they kind of caught eyes and went forward and said, look, let's just see if God can do something at this point. And so I did kind of what only I could do in that moment. Okay, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray literally like Jesus did, that God's power would be what resurrects your marriage from this death. I, I don't know if, it, if he will. I don't know how that all works. I just know that he can. I know that he can. I know that that power is in him. And it's not too little or too late for him. And so we, we, we prayed. And after we prayed, I mean, just in tears, I said, look, do, Do the two of you have a shred of a hope in God? Do you have a shred of a hope in God? Is there left in your marriage and in your lives, in your tanks, is there even a mustard seed size amount of faith 
that God can do something in this marriage. I don't know all the details, but do you have that? And they both in tears nodded and said, yeah, yeah, we do. And so I connected them to some Christian counselors, to a mentor couple. I said, look, I'm going to kind of, here's some next steps you can take. And these are things that only you can do. And there's things that only God can do to restore your marriage. But would you be willing to do the part that only you can do? They both kind of agreed and nodded. And so I saw them off. And to be honest, I didn't see them for months. And I think if I'm being honest, my assumption was, well, I get it. Life's hard. I I guess some things, you know, can't be saved. Until a couple months ago, when I was standing back in the same spot to pray, and they came walking towards me, completely different looks on their faces, completely different expression. And I asked them, okay, guys, yeah, I remember, like, what's, what's going on? They said, well, it's been a hard last couple months. Uh, we've gone to counseling. I go, he goes, we go, we all go. We met with a mentor couple who's helping us navigate the fact that he's actually going to be moving back in next week. And we want to give God the chance to restore our marriage. And it took both of them committing to that and both of them doing that hard work. And so I was just in tears with them, said, well, let's grab hands and let's pray. And they said, well, we want to let you know something. In each of their hands were the wedding rings that they'd taken off months and months and months before. And they said, we wanted to know, will, will, you, will you put these back on us? And will you help us start a new marriage built on God? And I was so moved. I said, yes, we're not going to do that here. Let's go to the prayer hall. And as I'm walking back, I'm going, I'm doing an impromptu wedding. This is, <laughs> they did not train me for this. Here we go. And so we go back to the prayer hall. And I said, here's what I'm going to have you do. I want you to grab hands and look at each other. I'm going to have you say vows. But these vows aren't just to each other. These vows are ultimately to God. Because it is only by his power that this is possible. Both of you had to show up and do the work that you could do, but only God can save a marriage. Only God can save a life. And I don't always understand his timing. I don't always understand how these things work out, but every now and then we get glimpses of glory in the midst of the darkest hours of our story. And that's what this moment is with Lazarus, an invitation to life in the midst of death. And this couple so clearly were at the end of their rope, they would tell you that their new beginning came at a very real end of themselves. And I wonder how many of us here today have had enough of our if-onlys. And you've put your finger in God's chest and you said, if only, if only you would have fixed this, if only you would have changed this. And what might it look like for you today to say, okay, God, I'm not gonna say, if only, I'm gonna say, God, as you will, your will, your way in my life. I trust that you can bring glory even from the darkest hours of my story, that that death is just a detail, God, that you have already defeated. So certainly you can handle this great pain or this great loss in my life. And to name it to him, whatever it is, See, that's the beautiful thing about Lazarus is what else was he going to do? Keep holding on? He was dead. There was no more hope for him outside of God. And when he heard his name called, he got up and he came to Jesus.
And that really is our hope and our prayer for, for all of us this week and this Easter season is that you would come to Jesus and in so doing, you would come alive. But you gotta come as you are. You gotta name the death in your life and the places where hope is decaying, where you've given up and bring those to him and trust that he has a much bigger and a much better story for you. And so for the next few moments, that's what we're going to do. We're going to bring those things to God. We're going to name those things, whatever they are for you. And maybe it's, again, for the hundredth time. Maybe it's for the first time. But would you today have enough courage and muster enough faith to say, God, I'm coming with all of this death to you because I believe you can and I believe you will. And to name it and to bring it to him. And in a moment, we're, we're actually going to take time to respond and we're going to sing to God and we're going to declare that this is actually only possible in him. He's the only one that could bring life to death because that same power that raised Lazarus is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead and it's the same power that God can actually work in your life today. And so we're going to respond and we're going to sing and we're going to do something we always do here, something we do every week at Soul City. We're going to give back to God. We're going to respond to God by giving back to him. And that may seem like the most absurd, upside down thing in the world to do, to give to God and to sing to God when it feels like you have nothing. But it is actually some of your greatest strength as a person of faith, wherever you may be at, is to say, even though it feels like I have nothing, God, I have something to bring to you. I'm going to bring you my little bit of faith. I'm going to bring you that little bit of myself, all I can muster today and trust that you will bring glory even to this dark hour of my story. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to respond by giving and singing together. So will you join me in a prayer right now? Jesus, thank you for the reality of who you are. Thank you for the truth of who you are. Thank you that this resurrection of Lazarus is just a prelude to what we're about to celebrate in two weeks. This is you demonstrating once again that there is Therefore, nothing that can separate us from your love. There is nothing, no part of our story, no part of our past, no pain in front of us that you don't weep over with us and that you don't call us out into life from. And so I pray that whatever it may be that is dying inside of us, whatever hope, whatever dream, is dying inside of us that you would restore and renew and bring us back to life in you today. We love you and will you awaken something deep within us that gives us a glimpse of your glory even in this hour of our story. We pray in your name, amen.